0: So we're in Matthew 5, we'll pick up where we left off last week, and we left off right at the salt and the light, and Jesus has gathered, I think it's key, because we're going to get into a lot of convicting stuff today, like this is where Jesus starts laying out the message of the kingdom and what it is, Um, before Jesus said anything, he laid out the power that he could heal anything, so he's demonstrated the power of God which got a multitude of people to follow him, as we saw at the beginning of chapter five. And then he invited his disciples and his disciples came up the hill to hear this part. So what we're getting into right now is for the followers of Jesus Christ. Those people that heard the call to repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. And then he went up to the mountain and they followed and wanted to hear more. A lot of people are just there because they want the healing, like free healing, good health care. People just show up for that sort of thing but to actually hear what the kingdom is and to be a follower of Christ, those are the people hearing this next part of the message. Um, So we'll pick up in verse 17. uh, Because Jesus also wants to condition the people hearing what he's about to say with this message. Don't think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or tittle will be by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So he opens with the Beatitudes which is a way of life and a way of thinking and right off he addresses the heresy of what's called a replacement kind of theology, that Jesus came and then replaced the Old Testament, and that it doesn't matter. There's also a replacement theology where the church replaces Israel, but that's a whole different heresy. Um, But he's dealing with that idea that somehow or another what Jesus is teaching replaces the Old Testament, and he goes out of his way to say that's not the case. When he says the law of the prophets in verse 17... That's the way they referred to the Old Testament. They did; it, they would say the Law, the Prophets, the Histories. They could say it in various different ways. But he's talking about the Old Testament, um, which is, uh, in oddly enough, becoming something that needs to be refuted again today. So when Jesus says this, it's actually kind of timely. We have people that say we don't need the Old Testament because we just stick to the New Testament. We even have there's called the Red Letter Christians. They just stick to what Jesus said in the New Testament, so they don't even go to the to the rest of it. Um, and Jesus himself says not to do that, that he's actually fulfilling these things. So if you want to know what he's fulfilling, you should probably read it. And in that said, um, Jesus uh, taught a lot of things that Christians today don't necessarily teach. I want to name some of those things just to put them up front, because if we're going to offend people, today's the day that people are getting offended. Jesus actually teaches... A literal creation mark 13:19 you can go back to the tape if you really want to go back to these good Bible study Jesus actually teaches in Matthew 19:4 we'll get to that that there is a real Satan with a personality in John 8 uh, in in uh, John 844 he teaches that there is a hell it is a place Luke 16 he teaches that there was a literal flood Luke 1727. He teaches that there was actually a burning bush in front of Moses, Mark 12. He teaches that the manna that came from heaven in John 6 is real. Um, And and that Jonah was literally swallowed by a a whale or sea beast. Um, And he teaches all of these things. Um, So when we critique or go back or dismiss things in the Old Testament that were miraculous, we're in danger of dismissing Jesus too. You don't really get one without the other because if he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament, then you can't pick and choose. There's also, according to Jesus, Acts 1-4, there's actually a Holy Spirit that comes and leads and guides us in life too. It goes on and on and on and on. Uh, If disciples want to know what the truth is, it may not be popular truth. So there are places and circles where you can talk about a literal creation and that's not a popular thing to talk about. And it won't win you favor with people that want to dismiss these things. So warning number one this morning, uh, as we get into talking about the law through the eyes of Jesus, this gets really contentious for a lot of people. In fact, this gets to be where people leave churches over things like this. Um, But Jesus doesn't back off of any of this. He goes right at it. And in fact, I think his intent is to divide. When we come at anything that has to do with the the, the law, I think as believers we have to have soft hearts for how it speaks to us, and we got to have thick skin. So at some level, when you talk about the law, if we're all sinners, it will offend every single one of us, and it will divide people that want to be closer to Jesus and people who do not. So there's this narrow path that Jesus is going to talk about. It's somewhere between being too permissive with sin where we just... Are okay with it and we don't respond to it, and being too legalistic where we start getting rule based around things that really have nothing to do with the law. So there's that narrow path between it that Jesus is going to outline. In verse 17, he says, He did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So when Jesus talks about these things, He's not critiquing the law, He's trying to bring us back to it. And I think that it helps to do a real deep study of Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Leviticus to know that the law was beautiful. And it was a wonderful thing. And it was meant to be uh, a condition of the heart that gets talked about. So the law explains some really core concepts that the Bible, that the New Testament just assumes we know. Concepts like propitiation, sacrifice, atonement, refuge, adoption. All of those concepts come out of the law. So if you don't understand the law, we can't understand Jesus Christ. It's really, it comes down to that. And the Old Testament does it. And again, God's beautiful with this. He uses narratives, typologies, prophecies, legal documents, historical documents, and he gives it all so that we understand that there is a thing pointing to Messiah throughout the Old Testament. And Jesus fulfills over 300 prophecies throughout the Old Testament. So to abandon the Old Testament, to think that Jesus destroyed it, is to abandon the things that give us confidence in Jesus himself. In fact, so far in Matthew, we've already fulfilled over a dozen prophecies. Just in him being born, he fulfilled dozens of prophecies. So he says, verse 18, and this is where we start looking at Messiah. And don't miss this. Don't read over this. For assuredly, I say to you, this is a phrase that's completely unique to Jesus Christ. Because he is explaining things with such authority and a strong affirmation. And he's building off of the law itself, but then he's adding to it. He can because he wrote it. So as the author of the law, when he says, I say to you, uh, and he uses this 14 times because he's God and he can give us a more accurate understanding of the law. And in fact, when we were doing Deuteronomy and when we we're looking at those chapters in the, in the evening Bible study, we often came back to this part of Matthew because this is how we're supposed to read the Old Testament law so that we don't get lost in legalism. Uh, chapter 729, we get done with the Sermon on the Mount. Everybody says they're amazed because he taught as one having authority. And that authority comes from that phrase in verse 16, I say to you. So he's not making a reference point there. He's explaining things from his own authority. So he lives it, he fulfills it, he leverages it, and he becomes the law and he fulfills the law for us. It says one jot or tittle. I love the phrase. A jot or a yod is the smallest mark in the Hebrew alphabet that can be made. Um, A tittle is like crossing a T. It's the difference. Again, though, there's some words where the difference between an L and a T makes a huge difference in meaning. So when he says not one of those things is going to be changed, not only is he emphasizing the importance of the Old Testament, he's saying that it was crafted perfectly and essentially. Not one jot or tittle is out of place. So we can, through the teaching of Jesus, understand the importance of knowing the complete word of God as an eternal resource that's permanent on earth. It's perfect, it's permanent, it's preeminent. And that maybe is elevating the word of God too high, but is that even possible? Because it's the word of God. So if we take it seriously, and, and we live in a, in a post-Christian society right now that loves to take knocks at the Bible in the Old Testament, but they do it out of a place where I, I think they're doing it out of a place because they don't want to hear what it has to say. And that is that there's a Messiah that that if there is a Messiah and God came and showed us a way to heaven, that there's nothing else that's more important than that. There's no health crisis that's more important than that. There's no business thing that's more, there's no retirement that's more important than that. There's no job that's more important than that. There's no friendship that's, there's nothing that comes in the way of that. That becomes the preeminent thing. Verse 19, of the least of these commandments, uh, he's... At this point, Jesus, I think with, in verse 19 when he says that, we get a clue to the context of where we're at in the first century. In the crowd right now are Pharisees that have heard about all these miracles saying we should check this guy out. And he's going to say some things that we know from, from Jewish histories are really important because Jesus is going to show us the way to actually be a righteous person. And he's going to contrast that the way we become righteous with the way the Pharisees think you become righteous. And he's going to take these shots, so when he says the least of these commandments, he's saying that all of God's law is important, where the Pharisees had begun to teach in the first century that there's some laws that are not as important, and some laws that are super important. And so a lot of the things he's going to get to in this chapter are responding to some of those teachings of the Pharisees. As much as he's laying out a new way, he's critiquing the first century rabbinical teachings, uh, and he's and he, and he's shredding them. He's absolutely taking them apart. Uh, so, We can't use the law to claim our righteousness, and he's going to lay that out, but we can use the law to claim that Jesus is our king, our priest, our redeemer, uh, and our sacrifice. So, warning number two, all of the Beatitudes and everything in the Sermon on the Mount is for those disciples that came up to hear him talk after he said to repent. Those that didn't want to repent may not be in the audience right now, or he's not addressing this to those people who don't want to repent. And this is, I think, something where when we talk about an entire lifestyle of serving God, the temptation of a legalistic Christian is to then accuse other people of standards we hold ourselves to. And that's not something that Jesus is necessarily promoting here. Um, so it, it's um, popular to say that human laws trump over God's law, but Jesus didn't, isn't going to teach that. In fact, he's going to teach that God's law trumps human laws. Uh, And Jesus didn't come to make peace with people on that. This is not a friendly kind of thing. I know I'm saying that a lot. Verse 19, um, breaks and does not teach them. The law will be the judge of good and evil. So there's a higher standard held for teachers, those who teach them. Uh, And there's an expectation of holiness or righteousness. Verse 20, again, that for I say to you, in verse 20, it shifts to an intensive language mode. Um, so unless you're more holy than, you know, Billy Graham, you're on your way to hell is what he's saying. Like you have to get a standard of holiness that when he says, unless you're more holy than the scribes and Pharisees in verse 20, he's making a distinction. Those are the holy people. Those are the people walking around. Like they've got it all figured out. Paul even says, I was blameless under the law. These Pharisees are saying things like that to the population in the first century. When Jesus says, unless you're more holy than those holy guys, you're not going to heaven. And that would be terrifying to the, like, this isn't a message that would make everybody happy and feel warm and fuzzy. We demonize the Pharisees today, but back then they were the priests, they were the pastors, they were the ones running the holy show and telling people how to live. So when Jesus makes that distinction, all these people that came to listen to him might just be going, wait, who is this guy? What's he talking about? Because he's going to first convict and then give people hope after that. Righteousness then becomes a key word. Uh, righteousness is uh, our ability to make things right with God. To be at a level at which God can accept us into his presence. And if he's a holy God, then things that are sullied, corrupt, and impure or full of sin aren't welcome in his presence. So how do we get to that point? And the, the, of course we know the answer to this is we don't. Um, but we have to think about righteousness differently than how the scribes and Pharisees do, which is to keep the letter of the law, but not the heart. So in that sense, God has um, has desired for an internal change in us. It's like this. If I go to sell Grant's truck after the engine breaks, right? And I find somebody and they pull up in the parking lot over here, and we look at the truck and we walk around and it's got a nice new paint job on it. And the people say, well, can we start it up? And it's like, no, 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 you can't. You don't need to start it up. Look at the nice new paint job. And the rear view mirrors have been replaced. And look at how the taillights have, have been cleaned out so they look nice and new. No one in their right mind would buy that truck unless they could take a key and turn a key and find out the engine doesn't work. And that's, I'm doing a lot of setup here, but I think we need, before we start talking about plucking eyes out and cutting hands off, like this is the idea is that what's inside matters more than what's outside. And no one wants to buy into a religion where the inside doesn't work. And if the inside doesn't work, it's not worth being a Christian or a follower of Christ. If it does work, it's worth giving everything for because it's a path to heaven. So I think that we need to understand that as we dig into this idea of exceeding the righteousness. Um, The other piece of the law is it points that everybody is failing to exceed the righteousness. There's almost, I don't want to say it without knowing it. There's a large section in the Old Testament about how to deal with leprosy. Not one instance of using that process exists in the Old Testament. There's two people that get healed from leprosy, but they don't get healed using the Levitical process at all. So why is it in there? Why is there a solution to a physical corruption problem that never gets healed? And the law does the same thing with sin. It explains what sin is and how to deal with sin, but it never gives a solution to it. And there's no example of people beating sin that exists in the Old Testament. So all the Old Testament really does, though we should know it, is it points to the fact that... um, we might think we're blameless, but at the end of the, the idea that that doesn't count for anything outside of Christ. Indeed, I count all things as lost that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness f- which is from God by faith, Philippians 6, Philippians 3: six through nine. The scribes are the Pharisees are an issue because they reduce the law when it's convenient and they extend the law when it's convenient. And the rest of this chapter is Jesus giving examples of what the Pharisees were teaching and showing how wrong it is. Um, For for example, extending the law, the Pharisees at this point in the first centuries actually tithed out of their herb gardens. Like the stuff you grow in your backyard, they would take a tenth of it and tithe it so that they were perfect in all gains. Uh, So just the, the way in which they had extended the law to be a point of ridiculous is part of what Jesus is pointing out here and how we should look at the law. So he starts with murder, verse 21. You've heard it said uh, to those of old. You have heard that it was said to those of old. Okay, I'm, before we even get <laughs> look at how he's saying that. Who's the one speaking that he's talking about? The scribes and the Pharisees. You've heard that it was said. So the teaching that you've had your whole life is that this is how the law looks. And remember, they didn't have copies of the Bible in their hand like we do. They had to go to synagogue on Sunday and hear a Pharisee read from the from the text and then talk about it. So if the Pharisees just stopped reading passages and started being selective in what they chose to, to read to the crowd, they would never in their lifetime hear what was actually in the Old Testament. And this is part of the crime of the Pharisees. So when it says... You've heard that it was said to those of old. The way the Pharisees were teaching was, this is how it's always been. This is how it's always been taught. And and if you've heard it any other way, that's not the truth. It's the way we're teaching it today. Um, And he, he shifts in verse 22 to, but I say, but I'll read the rest of the passage. You shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever's angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. So when he says, but I say, in verse 22, that's the emphatic version of that. Truth is the truth, and Jesus is the lawgiver here. The Pharisees have told you this. I'm telling you this. And he's establishing himself as a counter-authority to what they've always heard. In this passage, Jesus has three endangers, in uh, inokos in the Greek. Uh, a, a, to be in danger is a liability or a guilt or to be subject to justice for something. So there is a balance that needs to be found, a reconciliation that needs to be made when you are inokos, in danger. Murder in, in, in this page is fenuo, to kill someone. To murder uh, is, um, is to be, in, in the Greek, it's literally crisis um so when the pharisees taught a number of things short of murder were okay so as long as you didn't kill the person you could do anything you want to him and this is a teaching that frankly i think is coming back which is really sad the pharisees when they do that the idea that you're in judgment or i'm sorry the murder is uh fenio, fenuio, in greek and judgment is literally the word crisis you're in crisis when you have these things Um, I like Greek because the words sound a lot like English sometimes, and it's easy to, when you're in the Western language group, suddenly the words start to connect. Judgment is a civic decision to execute, not murder. The ancient law on almost every culture of the ancient world is if you kill somebody in my family, I kill you. And the only civilization that got in the way of that were the Jews that said, if you kill somebody in my family, you bring it to the judges at the city seat and vengeance is determined by a council, And that process was to get in the way of reactive anger and vengeance that never ends. And that process was to stop kind of that emotional reaction to people. So it is to kill someone is different than to be angry at them. But Jesus says anger is there. So instead of dealing with murder, let's deal with where murder starts. Murder starts in the heart. You have to be angry at someone. A are greedzo, in it's a verb. <laughs> Just to be provoked or mad at a person, according to Jesus, uh, even though you might have cause to be mad at them, but to be mad at them is to be provoked at evil in such a way that you want to get your vengeance. So this is not talking about righteous anger, anger because righteous anger is to be mad at something with cause. But in this sense, when it's a personal offense. Jesus is arguing you don't have cause. The word raka is a local term. It would have been slang in the Middle East in the first century in Palestine. Some argue he's using a swear word there. Um, But to call someone a name, the literal translation of raka is to be empty-headed. So it's like calling somebody an airhead. So when you call people names, uh, essentially you're calling something that God thinks is priceless, worthless. So you're not speaking truth. And this is where I think Jesus is getting to the heart of this law. The council is literally in the Greek, Sanhedrin, which is where we get the word Sanhedrin, which is the council of the elders that would be an assembly of people where guilty people are given a consequence. So if you call someone a name, you should be in front of a council. Notice that the consequences get worse on each of the three, and the actions, according to the flesh, get to be less and less. It goes from murder to name-calling, and it goes from danger of judgment, to hellfire. So Jesus is drawing a contrast. The word fool there in the Greek is moros, where we get the word moron, uh, to call someone dumb or stupid. Uh, Again, raka is a crude term. Fool can be used as a friendly term, like when a brother and sister call each other stupid. It doesn't mean they hate the person, but they're using harsh language with each other. Does that make sense? Right? I wouldn't call you know, my family member the F-bomb or something, but you might call them a fool. So you wouldn't call them Raqqa, but you might call them a fool. So Jesus is kind of continuing to bring the level of infraction down while he brings the consequence up. Again, uh, we diminish God's work. When, we, when God says somebody is special and we say that they're not, We're counteracting what God's will is. We become an enemy of God because we're working against his purposes in that person's life, regardless of what we think. All three of these assume that I'm more important than that person I'm angry at. That my will and my presence on this planet somehow has more of a right than theirs does. And if I'm already saved, like I'm ready to go to heaven, that person's maybe not. And we need to think of it that way too. So, You go from anger to judgment, rock out of the council, and fool earns you hellfire, which has an eternal uh, meaning or significance to it. Um, To hurt someone's reputation is to hurt their life. You're taking a piece of their life when you actively try to pursue or bring somebody down through name-calling. So when, when we think we know better than someone else, that's a really dangerous position to take. And from Jesus' perspective, that's the heart of arrogance and murder. That's when we kill people. We retosh them in our souls. Uh, the, the commandment that he's talking about is you shall not murder, number six, which is the root word "retash" in the Hebrew. "Retash" in the Hebrew has no premise of context. It's in all senses that you would murder somebody that it's wrong to do it. So Jesus is given a Bible study on you shall not murder that looks a lot like the kinds of Bible studies we do when we study the Hebrew. Because when we say ratash in the Old Testament, what Jesus is teaching is right on. It's not just the physical action of killing them. It's the heart or will of thinking that they deserve less than you. It's in all senses that you diminish that person or you destroy that person's um, value. So clearly fool is not the same as murder, and Jesus doesn't condone that. But as much as possible, as much as it depends on us, we're to live peaceably with all men, Romans 12, 18. So Jesus is given a decent Bible study in the Old Testament. Um, practical example. Back in the 1980s, I don't know if you remember this, but if you go back and watch old 1980s shows, all they would do is call each other names. Like that was the humor model in the 80s television sitcoms. And at some point, like I remember my parents just listening to it going, wow, they keep throwing insults all over the place. And at some point, as innocent as that feels, when you pump that stuff into your head, child psychologists found that kids that listened to evening primetime TV in the 1980s started using that language with siblings, friends, and people at school. So we're talking about thousands of studies that match media violence to aggressive thoughts and behavior. When we see it, we think it. When we think it, the likelihood of moving forward and doing it goes up. So we know that, yet the world, instead of like, Channeling that pumps millions of hours of violent television into our heads every single day. It's what the rest of the world thinks of America is that we just pump out smut and garbage. And we have no connection to that. While our school shootings go up and the wor- the, the real life world gets worse and worse and worse and nobody connects it to what we're pumping into kids' heads. And Jesus says, no, it, it actually, when you're calling somebody a fool, that's as good as murdering them. And maybe back in the 1980s, we should have thought more carefully about what we watched and what we put into our heads. In context, if you go up to verses 3 and 4, this is the opposite of being poor in spirit, is that you're mighty in spirit. You think you're better than other people. So Jesus is explaining righteousness based on what he did, what we studied last week in 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 the Beatitudes. Verse 23, What do you do about all this? Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled with your brother, then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with them, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer, and then you be thrown in prison. Oh my. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you've paid the last penny. The bringing your gift to the altar was something that would happen at the Temple Mount. When you came from another town, you'd bring your gift and be ready to sacrifice, but you then had to get in a line, and the line was in the court of the Gentiles. You'd wait a few hours. You'd get to the court of the women where the women were out in front of the temple praying. Then you'd wait a few hours, and then you'd get inside. Your family had to wait outside, so you're kind of by yourself because the kids and your wife would be out in the other courts. And You get into the inner courts. You get all the way to the Temple altar, and that's what he's saying. If you bring your gift to the altar, you've gotten all the way to the altar spot. And that's when you remember your brother has something against you. Oh, shoot, I got an issue with somebody. What he's asking them to do is forget about that three-hour wait in line. I mean, the lines were long. It wasn't like Disney World, or maybe Disney World's. (laughs) When we break a relationship with other humans on this earth, we actually break our relationship with God. And Jesus is making that point. Like something's busted here. And your sacrifice is an action that does nothing if your relationship with other people is wrong. Picture the Pharisees in the audience here in this. This is their money-making scam at this point. What do you mean relationships matter more than sex? Sacrifice is the only thing that matters. So to be reconciled, dialaso is to change thoroughly and be changed towards our brother, to mentally conciliate with that person, to redo how we think about the person, more accurately, to change our mind. So what's in the flesh is, I hate that person. I got an issue with them. They keep moving their sheep onto my pasture and eating all the good grass. It's the only biblical use of this word right here. There's other places where they say reconciled, like Romans 5.10, but that's a reconciliation with God, and that's a different word than what we have here. This word, at least in my Bible, it's translated reconciled. Dialasso is to change our mind in Romans 10, where it says, be, uh, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That's catalasso. It's a different word. And it doesn't mean the same thing. That reconciliation is to become return two parties back to mutual favor with each other. It's the way we use the word reconciled. To be reconciled is to be back at mutual favor with one another but the word that's being used in this passage has to do with changing our mind about that person. Verse 25 says to agree quickly with your adversary. Note that the quickly is added there. It doesn't need to be there, but it is. We're typically quick to anger, and, and that was known in the first century too. We're supposed to be quick to peace, and that should be. We, we should be working on our hearts to be different. Now, when he's talking to this crowd of people, most of them are thinking, uh, I was guilty of this this morning. Like if I really think about this, if you're going to come to an altar, that's the equivalent of us doing communion, right? We come to that, that point of communion with God. If you're holding the cup and the bread today, and we have that moment to think, we're supposed to think, is there anyone in our life that's not right? And the equivalent would be set the drink down or don't take it. If you're not at peace, and you don't have that reconciliation with that other person where you've changed your heart towards everyone. You shouldn't take communion. You shouldn't do it. And the, the Bible is really clear about that. And, and this is part of where that principle comes from. Don't be angry, Ephesians 4.26, and sin not. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Never give place to the devil. Any kind of anger or hatred towards people is Satan trying to do a thing in our heart. Now, again... <laughs> Go back to the warning. When we talk about this, this is convicting, I would think, to almost everybody in the room. Because there are people in our lives that we think that way about. Um, And Jesus is not trying to let up on that conviction. I mean, he's driving this conviction home, all the way to hellfire. So this is a passage that often gets minimized or explained away. And I'm not going to get into that, but I'll give you a couple examples too. Uh, One is when it says, agree with your adversary quickly. There's two different ways that people do what I call aha, aha, which comes out of the Psalms. David talked about people that would go aha, aha. It's like they're looking for a way to critique God's word. And that passage is one of them. So one is to say, we're never supposed to disagree, argue, ever, because to disagree with our adversary is to agree with Satan. And that's ridiculous. So aha, aha. So to agree with your adversary quickly means we're supposed to agree with Satan? But that's again, that's not what Jesus is saying here at all. Um, The adversary that's being referenced here is a perceived adversary or a brother that we have issues with. The other way you could go on this is um, this only has to do with our adversaries, but we can argue with other believers all we want. So if we're in the church, we can disagree and argue and hate and be mean all we please. And frankly, I've actually heard that argument come out of a real live human being in my lifetime. It's a ridiculous argument. But the idea that you're supposed to be okay with your brother and go directly to your brother with issues, uh, yeah, absolutely. And and that that's not a way to wheedle out of this. Verse twenty or, or in verse twenty-five, the word agree is isthe in the Greek. It is a it is to be or to exist or give wholly to someone. So it could equally be translated to give wholly to someone who is at at, at odds with us. If they want something, just give it to them. So we can argue, we can discuss, this is not what that verse is about. But our enemy wants us to argue to the point of a broken relationship. And we're not supposed to go there. And that can happen. Obviously, we can agree morally with God and God's word and God's law. And when we agree with God's law and people take issue with that, the Bible would see that as them arguing with us, not us arguing with them. Because if we hold to God's law, we are supposed to explain that to people. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says this. And if anybody does any evangelism, you know that sets people off sometimes. But the Bible says this is the right thing. But that's not a debate. That's like Jesus saying, I say to you this. Because He's giving a, there's an authority behind what he's saying. Typically when you find yourself in an argument, you will never find that that person asks your opinion. Arguing is generally just a trap for believers to get into. Uh, to cause division. So no one comes into the kingdom because they lost an argument. They come into the kingdom because they are loved into the kingdom. They're welcomed into the kingdom. There's an invitation to come into the kingdom. And for that to happen, we have to humble ourselves. And that's what Jesus is talking about. So Jesus doesn't argue. He points to the word. Matthew 12, 3. But he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? So that phrase, have you not read, is how Jesus does this. Instead of bickering with the Pharisees, he goes, haven't you read the book? There's no need to argue. It says it right there. Let me just point you to where it says that. And that's not an argument. That's an appeal to authority. It's a very different discourse method. Uh, Jesus does that again and again and again to model this for us. Matthew 12, 5. Matthew 19, 4. 31. You got that muted? Um, or, or even, have you not even read? He'll throw in the word even sometimes. Mark 12, 10. Luke 6, 3 and you will by no means get out of here till you've paid the last penny. Our moral our unrighteousness doesn't get paid with money. This is a figurative saying. Obviously, we don't pay cash for this. Um, it's like counting the sand or drinking the ocean or, or, or sweeping up after your kids. That Jesus points out the eternal consequences of unatoned for sin. They go forever. There is no cleaning them up. It includes everybody. So if God's law is sacred and relationships are the key, this is the opposite, uh, this anger thing is the opposite of meekness. Or, as Steph said, meek meeking, which is not a word, apparently, I guess. Adultery. Um, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Rabbinic teaching is, is only the action of adultery is wrong. And that's true. Actually committing adultery is wrong. But Jesus points to the, the heart issue here, and he gets right into the rabbinic teachings on this. But, I say to you, so the but is in response to modern common thinking in the, in the first century. I say to you, whoever looks at a woman in lust for her has already committed adultery with his heart. You're already guilty. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. If your right hand causes, causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you. For it's more profitable to you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. Uh, again, this gets taken out of context. Origin in the first century, second century, when did Origen hang out? Um, or, Origen actually castrated himself over this verse. Like, but it, Luckily in the Christian world, we don't have tons of people mutilating themselves because it's not what Jesus is doing here proper kind of exegesis and pulling this out in context, he's talking to his believers and he's making the point that you're all sinners. You think you're good under the law because the Pharisees have taught you that, but you're not. So he again, uh, commandment number seven, you should not commit adultery. The word there is not off. It's a primitive root word. To commit adultery doesn't just mean a physical action. It means in the heart. It means any form of adultery that could possibly be perceived is the primitive root of na'af. Jesus is teaching that verse accurately. And the accurate interpretation of the commandments is generally they're almost all root terms. Any form of it, you're guilty. So Jesus is is doing something the Pharisees didn't do. Job connects lust to the eyes, has no issues with that connection. Job's 31.1. I made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid or a young lady? Lust is a prison of the eyes and it's a lack of control. He does it in the sense of guys because it's mostly guys. But that is not to exclude that there might be women who are lustful too. Jesus is not making that point, um, but he is making the point that there are people that are wired to look with their eyes and then their hearts are there when our hearts should be on God. The point is everybody thinks fool and everybody looks And that's the point Jesus is making on both the murder and the adultery. We're all guilty of this. At some level, we're all guilty. And Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what his his followers learned too, and they taught it to other people. So just to look at a woman and to lust for her is two different phrases. One is to look at a woman. One is to lust for her. Um, So another way this gets taken out of context, there's whole denominations where men don't look at women. But that's not, Jesus looked at the woman at the well. He was able to look at women, and that wasn't an issue. The issue was the lusting for her. So he's using hyperbole here to deal with sin, Uh, like a brilliant person who's dealing with humanity. Um, To look at your wife and to do it in lust is not adultery. See the Song of Solomon. Very careful looking going on there, but it's done in the context of marriage. So even to look at a woman in lust is not sin unless it's somebody you're not married to. So, uh, to look is to discern something with the eyes, to gaze, to take it in. Um, And this is, uh, on the other side, the permissive side, people just say, well, I'm just looking at it, I'm not actually doing it. And that's what the Pharisees were teaching. So, you could go to a Greek temple of Aphrodite, hang out all afternoon and see the dancers, and then you could go home from the strip bar, I mean the temple of Aphrodite, and, and it wasn't an issue at all because you didn't have adultery. So the, the opening of Roman and Greek strip clubs had permeated the world. And they were called temples and they generally took 12 to 14-year-old girls and did sex trafficking. Not new. Uh, it's been around since the ancient world. But in Romans 12.2 it says, Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you can prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. Paul gets the word perfect from the end of this chapter, if you look down at that last verse. Our prayer as believers should that when we look at women, it shouldn't be in lust, it should be in love. And that's why in the Christian world, we call each other sisters and brothers. If the very first action I have with you is, hey sister, how are you doing? I'm thinking of you as a family member, and I'm changing my eyes to look at you in a different way. And when I say, hey brother, I can't have anger or murder in my heart towards a brother, because he's my brother, I'll die for him. So, the way in which we take that idea and, and think or renew our minds to think about people in holy ways is part of what God's gonna, or Jesus is gonna guide us to do. And then you gotta deal with the right eye causing you to sin, pluck it out, and cast it from you. It's a figure of speech. You can really dig into this if you want to, but we don't have, a, it doesn't make any sense. If you're looking at a woman in lust, plucking out one eye doesn't do the job, right? So, if, if you really wanna dig into like the use of figures of speech, You can, but the idea is he's giving an extreme response that should be taken because if you really want to deal with the problem, you should pluck out both eyes. But that's not what Jesus is doing here, right? So he says it's more profitable. It's more profitable to do that than to think that you're somehow okay because you have lust in your heart, but you've never acted on it, right? Don't be conformed to to this world at all. The principle remains, no matter what commandment we're looking at, If you can in your life, and I think this is the narrow road, if there's something in our life causing us to sin and we can get rid of it, get rid of it. It's just that easy. 80s sitcoms don't get played in my house, period. They're just filth. There there are no swear words, there's no nudity, but that language that they use to it, the disrespect. Actually, All in the Family was a lot of that too, wasn't it? That was a 70s sitcom. So maybe it started in the 70s. I'm just showing my generation but the disrespect on those shows is horrible. So we don't play it in the house. If, there's, if your eye causes you to sin, your eye doesn't cause sin, your will and your heart does. So you got to change those things. There's two ways to deal with sin. You can serve other people and you can study the word. And if you're serving other people and you're studying the word, you're probably not doing those things. But we're humans, we'd find a way to do it either way. If there's something piping sewage into your house, like if I opened a window and ran a sewage pipe and it was pouring stuff all over my floor, no one in their right mind wouldn't get outside and get the pipe out of the window so that the pumping of sewage would go somewhere else. So what gets called legalism by the world is us saying, I don't want a sewer pipe coming through my TV set into my house. I don't need it in my ears. I don't need to be conditioned to where I don't even notice when people use the Lord's name in vain anymore. I'm going to get rid of those things. I'm going to shut off those services. They don't add to my life. So in this passage, the key is the sexual desire, verse 16. And it's contrary to what we should be hungering and thirsting for, right? Go back to the top of the chapter. We're supposed to hunger and thirst after righteousness, not after this. That, and the other thing is God's beautiful and he's wonderful and he's amazing. Our focus on God is key. Uh, So we should be focusing on those things. Then he gets into marriage. You know, in case he didn't catch people on the first two, um, he's going to get to this one. We should know as context that the Greeks and the Romans had a legal version of marriage, but it was not the marriage of the Judeo-Christian world. It had no binding to the human at all. All the legal contract meant is that I would take care of her, but they could get divorced for any reason. Outside of marriage, sex was encouraged in the Roman world, the richer and more wealthy you were, the more people you should submit to you and you'd submit them through rape. So a, a master of a household would have sex with nearly all their slaves and there was no issue with that in the Roman world. It was a source of pride because they were a dominant Roman guy or a dominant a domina is the word they used for the women. That l- word was literally dominate uh, and that was what they did. It was horrible. Furthermore, it has been said. Who's it been said by, I wonder. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So this is, I'll get into it. But then, but I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason other than sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So this is tough in a society where there's tons of divorce. Probably half the audience had been in and out of marriages. It was common. The society and the culture had made it common. And Jesus is saying it's sacred and binding. So this is one of the issues the Pharisees actually later on, Matthew 19, they attack Jesus on this point. And they go after him. Mark 10, Luke 16, this divorce thing was a big deal in the first century. It's meant to be, Jesus goes back to what it's meant to be. Deuteronomy 24.1 is the idea behind marriage. When a man takes a wife and marries her, And it comes to pass that she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some uncleanness in her. Then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it into her hand and send her out of the house. Jesus goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in Genesis and says, God made man and woman one. They're supposed to come back together. He took woman out of man and marriage is to bring them back into a covenant relationship that reflects and models how God wants to have a relationship with us. Intimacy, trust, it's perfect. But... In Moses' day, they had such an issue with this that Deuteronomy allows for this situation where there's infidelity, right? So Jesus is making commentary on this law, even though the society had made it socially acceptable. This is going to scare off a ton of his listeners. The phrase, no favor in his eyes, back in Deuteronomy, the Pharisees took that to mean basically any reason at all. She could make your coffee the wrong way tomorrow morning and you could kick her out of the house and not have to pay for her food anymore. So when f- houses got financially strapped, women would get kicked out on their own. It was a abusive society, and the Jews were starting to partake in it, and the Pharisees were leading the way with their teaching. Uncleanness—they interpreted that really broadly. If she skipped her bath today, well, that's unclean. You can divorce her. So there were entire industries, money-making industries, where enti- Levites, their entire job was divorce certificates. And they would spend all day granting divorce certificates to people. It was a mill. Jesus says, furthermore, (laughs) this is on top of the lustful thinking that we just talked about. The divorce problem was in part the lustful thinking was the cause of it. Because guys would get married, they'd look at some younger girl, they'd get rid of the old wife and bring in a new one because they couldn't afford two. And you're not supposed to do polygamy. Um, and they would get this bill of divorcement. But largely what made this immoral system happen was, um, was lust and was, was that situation. Verse 32, uses used the word Im- immorality. In the Greek, that's pornea, the root word for pornography. So the reference here is a is sexual immorality that's going on. Uh, there's strong pressure in, in this world and money supporting the divorce system. Uh, Verse 20, 32 uses the phrase causes her. Uh, Men then are morally culpable for what happens to their wife after they leave a relationship, which indicates God doesn't recognize the divorce. Where the civic government may, God doesn't. So it's what he's saying. The state may recognize divorce. God doesn't seem to recognize divorce. Ultimately, then God sees separation but he expects fidelity. That's not popular in the first century. It's not a popular thing to say today. We can talk about it afterwards, Um, but I'm just getting through this chapter, and Jesus doesn't pull back on this issue. He goes right at it. Um, For Christians, I can say this. For Christians, this is dealt with a lot more in 1 Corinthians. There's a whole chapter on this topic in 1 Corinthians where the church had come to some agreement about where they stand with all this, because they live in a culture where divorce is okay and had all these Gentiles and Jews coming into the church. And what the church would say is this. starting, I'm starting in, well, the whole topic starts in 1 Corinthians 6, um, but I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 7. But you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. The law is a blessing. It's not something to try to dance around like the Pharisees. It's supposed to give you freedom inside of marriage and it's supposed to take care of people instead of having them get discarded and that's kind of a beautiful thing. So the idea or the key here is that abandoning a wife is contrary to being pure at heart and merciful. Abandoning a spouse is not being merciful to that spouse. The Christian solution to that is when you become saved or starting today, have fidelity. God's going to forget things that happened yesterday But from where you're at right now, stop doing what the world does and don't be party to this anymore. So there would be people coming into the church that had five, six, seven divorces and the Christians would respond to him and say, okay, so stop. It's the same thing Jesus said to the woman when all the Pharisees wanted to accuse her for being a harlot. And he basically said, where'd your accusers go? Oh, they're gone? Then sin no more. Stop doing it. And that's the solution in 1 Corinthians that Christians had for people in the church where divorce is a heart-rending, it rips you apart, it takes a piece of your soul with you. And the church just said, okay, God's a God of healing and he's not a God of shame and he's not a God of accusations. That's the enemy doing that. If you're a believer and you're following the Lord today, then follow the Lord today. And Paul even said it's better to not get married. If you don't need to get married, don't. You don't have to. There's no obligation to get married. Serve the Lord. But if you are going to burn with lust, which is Jesus' topic here, then get married. And if you get married, stay married for the rest of your life. So that was kind of the Christian response is whatever happened yesterday, you put that behind you with every other kind of sin that's out there. But let's not pretend that it's not a bad thing to break a covenant and break a vow. It's not a good thing. And I think anyone who's been in a divorce would agree to that. It was not a good thing in their life. Um, so you don't do it anymore. You stop doing that. Okay, so that wasn't popular. Then you get into absolute crazy talk. Like, so the rest of this chapter, Jesus goes off the rails. Uh, Verse 33, you've heard it said that it was said to those of old. The Pharisees are telling you this. You shall not, you can see why the Pharisees hated this guy, right? Like he's just going right against what they're teaching. You shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, don't swear at all neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it's his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you can't even make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes and your no be no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. The evil one being Satan himself gets us to do this. Okay, so this doesn't sound like much to us, but in the first century, here's the way in verse 33, this is what the Pharisees would teach. This is crazy. Uh, Okay, so what that says is, don't swear falsely, but perform oaths to the Lord. What that means is, I can swear falsely if I don't use Yahweh. So I can use everything but Yahweh. And then in verse 34, you can see him countering that. Because they would say, well, I swear by God's throne. But they'd say Elohim instead of Yahweh. If you're not Jewish, you don't pick up on the nuances, they're going to rip you off. So they would, they would actively swear falsely to people, and they would use phrases, and Jesus is just picking popular ones, by the throne of God, by heaven itself, or I swear by the footstool of God, I swear by the city of Jerusalem, or I swear on my own head. They would use these phrases because they weren't legally bound to those because they didn't swear in the name of Yahweh. So if you're another Jew, you would say, no, 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 I want to swear by Yahweh. But all of this means that you can assume the Jewish people of the first century were not truth-tellers. They were ripping off the Romans left and right every chance they got. But if they're dealing with another Jew, they would say, no, I want you to swear on Yahweh. All right, I'll swear on Yahweh, but that's one they got to keep. So again, they're dancing around the law. They're finding excuses to live the way they want to live instead of doing what they're supposed to do. Uh, If they're knowingly lying to people, the heart of that passage, that law, is stop lying. Don't bear false witness. Don't let things come out of your mouth that aren't true. In heaven, we don't need this law because in heaven, I hope, there's truth-telling going on. If you say you're going to do something, you just do it. I can trust that you're going to do it. And in the kingdom, in the church, we're supposed to be that way. We don't say one thing and do another. So um, Jesus' point is you don't even control your own head. Everything's God's. So when you swear at all, you're swearing based on something you don't have power over you don't own God's footstool, you don't own heaven, you don't own Jerusalem, and you don't even own your own head. So how can you swear by those things? Because you can't offer them up if you break your vow. So don't do it. Lies themselves are a prison, just like lust is a prison and just like anger is a prison. You put yourself in these bonds when you do this. Um, People take this to the other extreme and say we should never make promises, right? Uh, We're going to be over at your house Saturday night. Lord willing. And we you know, so we'll go to the other extreme. And it's like, well, we can never make a statement with our mouth because we don't even control Saturday afternoon, for goodness sakes. The Lord could return on Thursday and then I just broke my vow about Saturday. Trust me, if the Lord returns on Thursday, nobody's gonna care about your vow from Saturday. And the Lord's gonna let you off the hook for that. Because the Lord broke that promise. So there it gets to be legalistic. So people trying to be more holy go to the other extreme. So you got the Pharisees being permissive on this one, um, and then they go, the, and then and you got people being way too legalistic on this one. It's also just like the last two, a figurative use of speech to talk about a principle that God's trying to get across. The principle is, we should have pure hearts. Blessed are the pure of heart, and a pure heart doesn't lie. That's the principle, and it doesn't matter what you you should be able to just say yes and no, and people know you're a truthful person and it's just that easy. So for kingdom people to reflect God's light, we are the light of the world. We can't be thinking less of people, murder. We can't be lusting after people, adultery. We can't be lying to people, false witness. And if we're going to reflect God, we have to reflect God in his character, not just in the legalistic actions of the Pharisees. By the way, it's not a bad thing to say, Lord willing, because it's a nice way to bring the Lord into the conversation. So. Steph, I'm not trying to rip on that because I know we both do that, but to feel legalistic like you can never make a statement, and Jesus says right here, let your yes be yes and your no be no. I'll be there on Saturday, right? And we're supposed to just be resolved in what we say. We're going to take everything in our power and will to make that happen when it happens, and people should know that about us. So our reactions to people become essential because they're a reflection of our heart. Remember, um, when it comes to things like murder, adultery, all of this, Jesus is talking to believers that are trying to be more righteous. None of this, he said, I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. None of this has to do with civic government. So that's another way all of this gets taken out of context. Well, we need to put a legal document together. All of that remains in place. And for the law to deal with murderers is very important. But that's not how Christians should deal with that sort of thing. We should get murder out of our heart first. So, did I miss a whole passage? Yes, I did. Verse 38, we get to eye for an eye, another teaching of the Pharisees. You've heard it said, verse 38, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other cheek to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak too. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, don't turn away. Now the law says you're not supposed to steal. So when somebody steals from you, you should be going to the court saying, hey, I want, you know, that's the law that's, and he didn't come to replace that law either. The slapping on the right cheek cheek in the first century, that was a slight. It was a way, it was a form of calling someone raka. It was a a back slap to the face. And in 1950s TV, they did this all the time. So this, this is not unheard of even in today's world, but to slap someone on the cheek is, we see a lot less of it today. Back then, there was a lot more of it. It was a very common interaction for people that were angry at each other. Eye for an eye comes from Deuteronomy 19.21. It's a misquoting. So, um, interestingly, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth is a civic law that when a judge at the gates of the city has a case brought before them, the consequence for the infraction should match the infraction. That's the point of that line. The Pharisees took that to mean interpersonal relationships. They used it as a license for vengeance. And that's not what it was meant to be in the Old Testament at all. Um, so the way they say, the way he quotes it, he's ab- he's absolutely attacking pharisaical teachings here. Um, and this is in the first century when the Pharisees were teaching their people to resist the Romans. If the Romans do this to you, then you do this back at them. It was the premise of the entire zealot movement, right? So there's whole groups of Pharisees that teach this as a way of life to resist and fight the Romans. So when Jesus says, don't, I mean, every Pharisee in that group that taught that he's absolutely attacking their teachings. They want to have a debate with them. They want to get into it with them. And we never see an organized debate with him and the Pharisees. Like it never happens because he's not, he's God. He doesn't need to debate them about this. He knows the law. He wrote it. Uh, So there's a much larger principle here that criminals should be punished and he didn't come to replace that law. In 39, he says, but I tell you. right." So he's using that voice of authority, and the target of that authority is the listeners in his audience. For a Christian trying to be Christ-like, we don't seek justice personally. We give our rights up. Again, this is just crazy talk. right? The murder, the adultery, that stuff makes sense, but this stuff gets right to our flesh. Everything in us wants to do this. But it's not our world, so it doesn't matter. The tunic is something that, got to understand the references. Um, if anybody wants to sue you and take your tunic, tunics were like a garment of clothing. When Samson uh, wanted to make things right with the Philistines, he went and he killed people and he took their tunics. and he, So it's kind of that, that, that garment that goes underneath. It's like underwear. You can wash it. Most people had one or two of them, so they could wash one and wear one. Um, so the idea that if, if they want to take a tunic, just let them do that. But to take a cloak also, a cloak is not the same thing as a tunic. When he references the cloak, he's actually referencing a a law in the Old Testament, Exodus 22, 26. The law says that if you take someone's cloak, at the end of the day, you have to return it to them. You can't take a cloak in payment. So Jewish law, cloaks were not okay. When Jesus says if they want your tunic for some sort of settlement in the courts, um, you're supposed to also give them your cloak. That means that the law says they can't take your cloak, but as believers, we can give the cloak. And Jesus is saying we can go above and beyond. We don't have to claim our rights on that cloak if we don't want to. We can give them up. And in doing that, we create these insane situations where nobody in the world understands what we're doing. How can you do that in the face of that? And it becomes this really interesting situation for us as believers because we're looking for those opportunities. So Jesus says, but I tell you, you can just give him your cloak too. The going one mile, another, <laughs> under Roman law, a soldier carried would carry 50 to 60 pound packs of supplies. So if they're on the road and they run into a, 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 a Roman controlled person, like someone under the dominance of Rome, they could stop and say, hey, you, you're going to carry my pack for a mile. But the Roman law in mercy said, you can only make people carry your pack for one mile. And after a mile, then the Roman had to give it to somebody else because they, they were killing people because people couldn't handle this weight on their back in the middle of the Palestinian wastelands. So the rule of Roman law was you could go one mile. So when Jesus says go two, he's telling them to be nice to the Romans. Pretty much he's lost his audience at this point. Because like, if you're not just an angry Pharisee, now you're an angry citizen because if you ever had a Roman make you carry their pack, you hold that with, you feel, the point of that law was to break people, to make them feel subservient, that they're less than, that they're not as important, that they're, it was to humble people forcefully, right? Like prima nocta in, in England. The point of some laws for a dominant empire is to make sure people knew who was dominant. So when Jesus we read right off, go the extra mile is where we get that phrase, we read right over that today because we missed the significant. That's probably more convicting to everybody in that room because most of them have probably had to carry a Roman soldier's pack and with bitterness and hate and anger, and it'd be something that would be where Jesus just says, "You know what? let go of it." This is the opposite thing of what he' is, that going carrying a soldier's pack one mile, When Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers at the beginning of the chapter, now he's showing us how to do it. Just make peace with the Romans. Be nice. Don't give them cause to bring you up to the court or the council. Agree with your adversary quickly. If we live by God's principles and not the world's systems, we can make a difference for our God. And the world's systems may not be happy with that. Love your enemies. Oh, now he gets really nuts. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Who would be teaching that kind of message? The Pharisees were. They are teaching it all the time. Hate the Romans, love the Jews. Be nice to us, lie to them. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Again, up in the Beatitudes, he mentioned persecution. And now we're getting back to that topic. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Again, another horribly misused uh, verse in verse 45. The Old Testament actually says, Leviticus 19.18, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the rationale in Leviticus is, I am Yahweh. This You do this because I said so. You don't need a rationale or a logic. Um, but here's what the Pharisees did with that verse. They would take Leviticus 19, 18 and say, well, wait a second. Don't bear grudge against the children of thy people and you shall love thy neighbor as yourself. Well, that means we only have to be nice to Jewish people. We can be mean, horribly mean to everybody else. And they were. And so the passage there is, I think, uh, like clearly Jesus is giving us a much better Bible study than the Pharisees. Pharisees, frankly, taught untruth. They taught that you could be cruel, and the point of that law in Leviticus is to be kind to everyone, because if God made everyone, God's the God of everyone, then everyone is our neighbor, not just the people we like or the people that agree with us, and that's the commentary Jesus gives in the next few verses. The point Jesus gives is the same point in Leviticus. Leviticus, we do it because I am the Lord, verse 45, that you might be sons of the Father, if you want to be children of God, you do this. If you want to be children of the world, then go ahead and do what the world does. But if we imitate God and we reflect God, then we have to reflect him differently in situations where people notice it. Romans 5.10, if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. It is our life in Christ and as children of God that saves us, not the other way around. Makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. God's waiting so that everybody can be saved, even the people that do us wrong, even the people that have hurt us. He wants them to get saved too. And in our flesh, again, everybody's convicted by all of this, right? So we got to have thick skins and soft hearts. At some level, if I'm guilty of this, because everybody is, everybody's been wronged. And if we hold those things, we stop our ability to connect with God. We have to get past these things. So it's not to be like the Pharisees. It's to be like God himself and to be children of God. Verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? You're not any different than the world. Even the world loves the people that love them. They do it really well. They have great, we were just in a, we went out to dinner the other night and we were listening to the bartender work the crowd. And Steph goes, I don't think those people even know each other. But they're talking and they're becoming friends. And I'm like, I know. Maybe the church should learn something about how to welcome people from a bar. Because they know how to welcome people. They know how to say, hey, welcome in. What are you having tonight? What can I get for you? Right? And they know how to do welcome. It's why people go to bars. It's to meet people and hang out and have some fellowship outside of the church it's a distant shadow of what fellowship we get in the church but it makes some sense that people feel welcome in a place where they're supposed to feel welcome and sometimes in the church we do we don't do what they do there but maybe we should have a big old non-alcoholic bar when people walk in the door and we say what are you having welcome back isn't your name Jack I saw you last week welcome back Jack what are you having right of course then you got to get rid of the carpet because then you got the little ladies that get upset about spilling on the carpet so Already getting a vision for that building. Concrete floors, spill wherever you want. We got people running around with mobs. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? I love that that line's in Matthew because we know Matthew's a tax collector. It's like that line stood out to Matthew. It's like Jesus was talking right to him. You ever have that when you're listening to a teaching and stuff? I hope you do. That's the Holy Spirit where you feel like the teacher's talking right to you. And Matthew hasn't been called yet, right? So he's maybe just dingling around the edges right now, just checking out this Jesus guy. And then Jesus says something like that. And he's like, wait, are you talking to me? And how did Jesus know that that was me? Verse 47, if you greet your brethren, your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Don't even the tax collectors do so? Again, he says tax collectors again. That apparently stood out to Matthew. I love that. Often when we hear the word of God, it speaks right to us, which is why we need soft hearts and thick skin. 5.11, we endure evil for God's sake and for his name. Persecution's noted at the top of the chapter. It's noted here. And the question is, what do you do more than others? If we're just like the world, it doesn't make a difference. Why even be a Christian? If we're like the world, then we're not even noticed. This was convicting for Steph and I, because we realized, like, because somebody had said to Steph after two, three years of knowing them, oh, you're a Christian? And It's like, wow, how did you not know that about me after two, three years? What have I done wrong? You know, and that was, I shouldn't just say you, I, I had that experience too, and, and suddenly you start thinking, maybe I should be, what do I do more than others to stand out for Christ and stand out for God's kingdom? To love those that love us is not a virtue. That's called easy. It's It's bar love, right? It's not wonderful. And then the final statements of this section, (laughs) if we're loving and faithful to our master, we're completely submitted to our master or the word meeked. If we're meeked to our master, all these things fall into place. So we exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees because we have a different kind of righteousness. We're not trying to do their game of legalism. And we're not trying to do the game of the Romans with permissiveness. We're doing this game of righteousness, which is our hearts attending to our master and our God. Verse 48, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Dang, if that's the goal, and we all fall short of it, then all we can do is continue to pursue it until the day we die. That's it. Many in the crowd are probably already thinking, I called my brother a fool yesterday. Or dang, I just looked at that woman five minutes ago. Or shoot, I'm divorced and what am I going to do? Like he's already got them thinking about this. And then he gets to the end line, you shall be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect. Notice that he shifts to the future tense. The point isn't to be righteousness yesterday. The point is to be righteous tomorrow. Tomorrow and to be made perfect in Jesus Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the goal, the future tense, is to be perfect. So if I want to get there, then I want to get there as quick as I can and as fast as I can. And the closer I get to it, the more God's going to use me for his kingdom work. So shut off the TV. Get rid of the stuff that's causing me distraction. If it's causing me to be angry at one political faction, then shut off the news. It doesn't help. Chapter 1's main point is you can try to be righteous by the law, but you're not going to do it. Every jot and tittle of the law is true. It doesn't go away, but you're never going to get righteousness there. You're only going to get guilt. You're only going to find out how imperfect you are under the law. So therefore you shall be perfect. The word perfect there in the Greek is teleos, brought to its fitting end. It is a consummation word. So it's important that we know that. It is to be finished with no part left wanting. To be perfected might be a better translation. You are completed in our discipleship of Christ. You are perfected in that. And it's a paradox that we can't do it on our own. We have to have Christ to do it. So if we're adopted, we're new creations, we have new hearts, we have great tools, we got the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, a renewed heart, we got a repenting spirit, and we've got the atonement of Jesus Christ. We got all the tools... The goal is to become perfected and to be consummated, to be finished and brought to our fitting end. In fact, that's true of all humanity. We're all going to be brought to our fitting end. And we're going to be put where we deserve to be put. So when we see that Christ's path, we are forgiven. We don't have to worry about our righteousness yesterday because it's forgiven. We don't have to make it right because it has been fixed. So Romans 3.21 22 believers percolated on this and they said now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed it's something we can see being witnessed by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe anyone who comes to the door it gets opened the heart of the law is the Shema Deuteronomy 6:5. Jesus is fulfilling this Jesus said to them By the way, the Shema is his respond when they said, what's the greatest commandment? Well, all these laws you think you know so much about, what's the greatest one? And he says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. That's the first and the greatest commandment. The whole point is to be submitted to God. Everything else is dealing with human sin. So if we deal with the heart, we don't have to worry about murder. (laughs) Like if we don't even think that way about people if we don't look at women in lust, but we or men in lust, sorry, I don't I want to include the ladies on this. I don't want to exclude you from that sin. But we look at them as brothers and sisters. We don't have to worry about adultery. Like, we, If we change our heart and our mind around our oaths and our word and our truthfulness, we don't have to worry about getting caught in a lie. Like All of these things, we, we can become righteous because we've simply dealt with the heart issue and not the legal issues. So what do I do? Uh, Jesus didn't just come with a bag of tricks he came with a way of life and that is the beautiful thing about the coming of jesus christ and then he backs it all up by doing these miracles to show that he was in fact god himself he had every bit of authority to say this to us next week we'll get to chapter six week after we'll do chapter seven we'll get through the sermon on the mount but this new way if it's not convicting to you uh You need to pray about how hard your heart is because it should at some point hit all of us right right between the the eyes, right? And at that point, you have to deal with that idea of am I a follower of Christ? Do I want to go down that path or don't I? And Christ invited us to count the cost because that cost is something that we have to weigh out. Amen? Dear Lord and King, we thank you for your word and your truth. Lord, it hurts to hear it sometimes and Lord, I'll confess I'm guilty of it but I put that at your altar and I put that down before you, Lord. Um, change my heart. Make it new. Lord, renew in me and, and a clean heart and a steadfast spirit. Change my mind and my heart, Lord, so I don't have to worry about the legalism of the law, Lord, but um, we, we live so far beyond it. It's just not something we need to worry about too much. Lord, help your people to rise. Lord, I just pray that you take away any hesitation we have to share our faith with others, to put God out in front. Uh, Lord, if you're the God of the universe, we have no right to be ashamed of you or to put you away or to put you aside. Um, If you've shown us a way we have, uh, how arrogant of us to think we might know better. Lord, help us to just hear what you have to say. And as we might disagree with each other on how to read some of these passages, Lord, but help us not to excuse ourselves from dealing with what you say directly. Uh, Lord, may I get out of the way of that. And may the teaching today um, just be transparent so that what we see are, are the words of the Sermon on the Mount and what they're saying to each of our hearts. Lord, help us not to think something and not do anything about it, but to think about it, to be convicted by it, and then act and change our lives. Uh, Lord, if we have uh, any wicked ways in us, seek them out and purge them and get rid of them. We know that we can't be perfect on our own, but we know in the Holy Spirit, Lord, that's the goal. That's what we're seeking and where we hope to be uh, consummated someday, Lord. So we just pray that you guide us, you teach us, you instruct us uh, so that we can be disciples and sons of God and daughters of God. In Jesus' name, amen.